Kristen Rawls. And I'm Jeff Eaton. This is Christian Rankcast, the podcast in which we contextualize and historicize uh, some things about the, the contemporary American Christian right in order to help you understand authoritarian politics in the United States today. Uh, and today, uh, Jeff, I think, has an episode ready about... He's going to talk about some uh, different uh, end times theology and eschatology um, and, and end times and narratives that kind of frame uh, what we just talked about the, the in with with the the insurrection at the Capitol building. Yeah. Um, so this this episode actually originally started out um, when we said, well, of course, obviously, we've got to talk about the impact of the left behind books and all of that stuff. You know, this idea of like the end of the world, um, the idea of like a coming apocalypse, the end times or the second coming or a bunch of other synonyms. That's been a part of the Christian like faith since, well, since before it was even called christianity um and it was part it's been part of american pop culture for a long time too like the image of a guy with a sandwich board with the end is near painted on it is like a universal symbol for a weird street preacher um and being told to repent because the end of the world is coming or maybe seeing a film like a thief in the night um where that message is like literally the whole story for some people that's their first encounter with like you know, hard sell fundamentalist evangelism. Um, and that weirdly intense dynamic where like reams of pop culture, um, you know, like left behind and stuff like that. That's one of the things that we wanted to explore, but like everything we touch on this podcast, it got complicated. Um, and before we dive in, I want to put a put out a quick content warning. Um, I think this may actually be the first content warning we've done on the show, but um, like a lot of our episodes, we're going to be diving into some ideologies and religious beliefs that have been a source of trauma for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And in addition, like the history of Christian eschatology and apocalypse narratives is really tangled up with the history of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Yeah. And while that's not the focus of the episode and we're going to be like dwelling on it, I want to make sure that nobody's caught off guard um, by the kinds of things we're at least going to be, you know, covering and mentioning and have a chance to either like get in the right frame of mind or tag out and wait until we're just making fun of Kirk Cameron. Um, mm -hmm. the, the time will come, I promise. Um, but with that, um, we'll dive in. Uh, the, <laughs> you know, our original plan was actually going to be to kick off with a clip from TikTok that went like kind of viral last year. Um, there was like, there's, it, it starts with like a young blonde lady who's acting out two roles in like the traditional TikTok, you know, vocabulary. Um, you know, one, one girl who's injected with the COVID-19 vaccine, but is doomed for it. And the second girl who refuses the vaccine and is beaten and killed, but goes to heaven because she like stood firm and, and didn't get vaccinated. And a lot of people who like wanted to know what was up with that. And there were parodies made of it. And like a lot of nurses replied along the lines of like, uh, have you ever had a shot before? Because that is clearly not how it goes down. <laughs> but um, we knew what was going on there. <laughs> right. But like, we had seen but, this before. <laughs> exactly. And and like it felt like the people who were scratching their heads and saying, what's this? Were not grasping that this was a classic trope from Christian rapture movies. The idea of like one friend receives the mark of the beast and is allowed to live and the other refuses the mark and stays faithful and they're martyred, but they go to heaven. And that trope and of- The mark oh. of the beast can take many forms. I don't know if you were about to say that. It can be a oh. barcode or a, a computer chip. It could even be a, a vaccine. vaccine. Yeah. You know, yeah. And- and like that trope of staying faithful and refusing to participate in the Antichrist system, that it's part and parcel of like these, you know, lurid, you know, rapture films and 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 stories, that 
it was a it was an instance of that crossing over from like end times role play to actual anti-vaccine conspiracy theories and it seemed like the perfect way to point out how these apocalyptic themes that are present on in the american christian right tend to cross over and shape how other issues are understood and framed and then there was the coup um and like mm-hmm. suddenly the the you know this TikTok meme felt like just the tip of the iceberg um, and like a violent takeover of the U.S. Capitol building by thousands of rioters trying to stop the election from being certified, surrounded by like evangelical and charismatic Christians, like blowing Jewish ritual trumpets and like, you know, yeah, that I'm, sort I'm of... just I'm just going to tell the people this is our our second attempt at this episode <laughs> well some things had to be changed after the coup and we we ended up scrapping it and and just deciding to do it over and, um so and i think it pays off yeah i, think, I, I agree you know, I, think so. I think i think it's it was it is worthwhile that yeah um but like i i think that the the different threads that you know that are i think i mentioned in the last episode that the the different threads that are coming together post coup um it's very encouraging to me that they're getting coverage from like mainstream journalists mm-hmm. like specifically you know a the fact that like high stakes final battle between good and evil rhetoric and language has been present and building on the right for many years um like i think michael anton in like 2016 wrote an article about how it was the flight 93 election and compared it to um the passengers of flight 93 on 9-11 who like stormed the cockpit and crashed the airplane into the ground in order to save everyone else and he said that's what electing donald trump is like like that that kind of rhetoric has been ramping up on the right um for for a long time and you know i think more people are starting to recognize that like eventually that hits a critical point you know and and something like what happened in the capital there's a spectrum at which that uh, and eventually you get to the point where that is an inevitable or, or at least expected outcome um the other part, the other thing that's been getting more attention is the fact that like slogans and imagery from the QAnon conspiracy theory were everywhere during the riots, they were all over the place. And that's a movement that specifically anticipates like a final battle between patriots and everyone else. They call it the storm um, that is going to like cleanse the nation and usher in a new era of peace and prosperity and, you know, America being what it was meant to be. And that is classic apocalyptic narrative like by the books yeah um and then finally like there's the fact that right-wing christians um were a major part of the events in the capital even you know whether they were specifically a part of the capitol building being stormed or just the broader cluster of groups and movements that were um trying to stop the certification of you know the the election um they were part of that and the the idea of Christian end times imagery being mixed with Q conspiracies and like you know um, you know charismatic prophets insisting Trump would stay president no matter what the media said those kinds of things were part of were all there and seeing more coverage of that stuff is very encouraging um, yeah. and. There's there's one particular thing that um, the day after the riots um, or the the coup um, jumped out at me. It was uh, somebody who called in on CNBC, um, really shaken up, a uh, Trump supporter, um, to to they they wanted to speak to the anchor. And I actually have the clip here. I'm going to play it real quick. Hi, Tammy. What are your thoughts about today? I just have one question. I wanted to know. If my president lied to me today, and if he did, I want me him to tell me, and more importantly, I want him to tell the family of the woman that got shot and killed today. I voted for him. I voted for him. I'm sorry. And it's obvious that, like, Lots of people who were part of the coup are like doubling down or trying to cover up their involvement. Um, and as we record this, there are like still people planning 
further acts of violence. But from an apocalyptic standpoint, a lot of beliefs about what would happen on January 6th were shattered when it didn't go down like they expected. And the woman from that clip, to me at least, sounds a lot like people who throughout history have bought in on apocalyptic predictions of a cult or a particular religious movement only to eventually face that sick realization of what they've lost when the date arrives and the end doesn't come and Mm -hmm. the big transformation doesn't occur. And my intention isn't to like excuse or redeem people's participation in something deeply destructive, but to like draw that line from our common conception of apocalypse narratives as like a big cataclysm, natural disaster or something like that, to the movements that are active in broader culture today. Um, Because I think understanding that apocalyptic narrative is a critical part of understanding the history of the Christian right or the religious, the Christian right in America and our current moment. Um, So a lot of what we think of when we hear the the word apocalypse or end times revolves around the book of revelation um or the apocalypse of john mm-hmm. um it's the you know it's the last book of you know the christian bible um and if we're talking about fundamentalist evangelical christianity we're also used to a specific and fairly complicated interpretive framework that tries to tie revelation and all of the other prophecies from the Bible into like a single unified timeline of human history with predictions about what's going to happen in the future. And we're going to touch on that in a bit. But first, like, you know, what the heck is revelation for folks who haven't recreationally read all the books of the Bible? Um, It's the last book of the Bible, supposedly written like about 60 years after Jesus was executed by the Romans. It's like, it's vivid and violent and full of symbolism and numerology and like visions of a final war between good and evil. And narratively, it's framed as a letter from a Christian prophet who's been imprisoned by the Romans um, around the time when like Roman persecution was really starting to kick up. Um, and he's sending this letter he's written to a bunch of the churches in Asia Minor, um, and it details a series of visions and warnings that you know God wants to give these churches about the future. And there, you know, it talks about the rise of a charismatic leader who heads an evil global empire and the persecution of God's faithful followers, and and that's, increasing... that's the Antichrist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and there's an increasingly dire set of like wars and calamities and plagues that wipe out like three quarters of the population. Of earth and and it comes to this final epic battle between like heaven's army and the evil empire and a lot of symbols and language from revelation um populate like the bible prophecy lexicon um and some of those things have even become like part of our broader pop culture vocabulary of like horror and dystopia and general stand-ins for like spooky prophecy stuff like the movie the seventh Mm -hmm. seal is named after the seven seals that hold back divine judgment in the book of revelation Mm -hmm. um and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the four symbols of like you know war and famine and so on arriving in the book of revelation and Mm -hmm. if you have ever watched the tv show supernatural on the cw it basically did like a taco bell remixing and matching ingredients version of symbols from the book of revelation for like 14 solid seasons Mm -hmm. um and like some of those things that you know, are ubiquitous are like the, the antichrist, like, or like AKA the beast um, is some kind of like incredibly charismatic leader who unites the world and is seen as like this, you know, person who brings peace to the world, but he's actually evil and he's determined to stamp out God's followers. Um, and then there's the mark of the beast. It's some kind of like mark of allegiance that people have to accept in order to buy or sell. Um, and revelation says that the mark is 666 the number of the beast which is mm-hmm. how 666 got on like every single metalhead's high school notebook in the universe <laughs> um and then there's the, tri- the the tribulation which is seven years of like horrible natural disasters and famines and persecution of anyone who follows god mm-hmm. there's this idea of like the dead believer dead People, you know, people who died but were followers of God being resurrected mm-hmm. and then along with all of the other saints being raptured, like, you know, God 
you know, resurrects everybody who, who, who believed in him and along with all the people who were living and all the dead, yoinks them up to heaven in, like in the twinkling of an eye the rapture now this um, i want to add this is not something that all christians or even right. all fundamentalist christians are concerned with this is an interpretation specific to <laughs> baptists pentecostals and charismatics it, it's uh, a and, very and, specific interpretive framework and like in a little <laughs> bit we're actually going to like mm -hmm we're going to look at like how this particular framework happened and like where, how it became inherently connected to right. like certain aspects of the Christian right. But like these particular details, it's sort of a mix of like this framework's particular read on revelation and mm -hmm. things that were present in some of those particular like weird symbol filled visions that are in the book of revelation yeah. became part of like the lexicon of end times stuff that are right. pretty much everybody has sort of heard little bits and pieces of some yeah yeah um there's also this like the second coming the idea that Jesus is going to return to earth as like the general leading an army of angels to kick ass and take names. Um, the millennium, a uh, thousand year period of like peace and prosperity where Jesus runs everything and, you know, it's, you know, everything's good. And that actually, that, the, the concept of the millennial reign of Christ actually factors into the beliefs of a lot of new religious movements that even that don't even subscribe to a bunch of the other end times stuff. But that's a whole nother episode. Mm -hmm. um, there's this idea, the, the Armageddon, um, the idea of a final battle between good and evil, where like yeah. the Antichrist and his followers duke it out to defeat Jesus, but are defeated and essentially Earth is destroyed in the process. Um, and then Judgment Day, like after Armageddon, every, everyone, everyone on Earth, everyone who's ever lived and died and, or, you know, whatever is judged and every secret is revealed. No one can hide the evil things they did or resist kneeling down before God and acknowledging he's in control. And evil people are punished forever and faithful people who endured through it all are rewarded. And there's a new heaven and new earth at the end of time. Like the ultimate, like, and they walk off into the sunset moment um and because so much of the actual content of the book of revelation is like veiled in like numerology and symbols and metaphors um there's a lot of leeway in what to make of it and how to tr make sense of it if you take it seriously and there are lots of different schools of thought in uh -huh. christianity about both what those metaphors mean yeah. why the book's author used all of this symbolic language um like one theory is that the book was basically coded messages about the roman empire and its rulers and it was a way to say dangerous things that those in the know receiving the letter would understand even if like it couldn't be pinned on them if uh -huh. authorities read it and um one of the books that um, you know I dug into as part of the research for this um, is uh, Revelations, Vision, Prophecy, and Politics in the Book of Revelation by Elaine Pagels. Mm -hmm. um, she's a she's a professor at uh, I believe Princeton who um, is basically an expert in like early Christian history and the development of like Christian theology and that era. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great book um, and. That that idea of like why is it so, um, you know, why is it so steeped in imagery rather than simply relaying a set of events that the author wants to talk about? So she actually weighs in on that. Her theory is um, John wants to do more than tell what happens. He wants to show what these events mean. He wants to speak to the urgent questions people have asked throughout human history. Okay. Like whenever they first imagined divine justice, how long will evil prevail? When will justice finally be done? And he invokes the language of classic prophets who tried to assure their people that like what was happening on earth was not random, it wasn't meaningless, that it, the moral complexity of the present world will be sorted out when divine justice sets everything straight and punishes evil. Um, and those themes of like suffering and persecution and wrongs that have to be righted are a really big part of the religious rights narrative about why they have to lash out, why they have to be so aggressive and um, combative in pushing back against the world. Um, it's over the top, given the fact that they're a profoundly privileged group in a country that treats Christianity as the default um, for mm -hmm. like 
respectable members of society. But Revelation is interesting because it comes from a time and a whole tradition of writing when that persecution narrative was legitimate and very serious. Mm-hmm. Um and because the, th- the thing is, is, the book of Revelation is not the only apocalyptic work of literature. Um, there was an apocalypse of Peter that was really popular in like the early second century. And there were a bunch of like Gnostic apocalypses that were written um, that focused on like secret knowledge for the initiated of, you know, the, you know what, what could be learned from these visions. Um, and conceptually, apocalypse isn't an event. It's more of like a literary genre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from the Greek word that it's from a Greek word that basically means unveiling or revealing, which is also why the Apocalypse of John is translated the Book of Revelation. Um, and the idea is that the focus isn't just on destruction or like the end of the world per se, but on revealing hidden divine truths and like. Mm-hmm centuries before Christianity even existed, um, Jewish writers were writing apocalyptic narratives. Um, and that's important because the genre of apocalyptic literature and its themes of like persecution and oppression and supernatural payback are really inseparable from the story of like Jewish persecution and exile that Mm -hmm. preceded Christianity. Um, And in addition to Pagel's writing a lot about that in her book on Revelation, um, L. Michael White, um, a Christian origin scholar at UT Austin, Mm -hmm. uh, he also wrote a book called From Jesus to Christianity about like sort of the emergence of what we know as Christianity now from Mm -hmm. um, first century events. And interestingly enough, he was also a consultant on a PBS special from like 1998 about apocalypse narratives leading up to Y2K. And although the video is hard to find, I I could not find the video of it. PBS still has a huge archive of dozens and dozens of interviews with like apocalypse scholars and early like first century like historians um, Mm -hmm. talking specifically about these issues and how these things rose up. I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. If you're curious about it, it's great to check out. Um, But the Cliff's Notes version is that like roughly 600 years before Jesus, um, the Babylonian Empire is on the rise and it like takes aim at the Jewish nation state of Judah and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his armies lay siege to the capital city of Jerusalem. It's conquered. The nation of Judah is gutted. Its people are captured. Huge swaths of the population are like taken off to Babylon in exile in chains. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they believe God had promised that King David's royal line would endure forever is broken. And there's a line in Psalm 137 that references that era. Um, and the line is, the, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept for Zion. That kind of gives you the vibe. And like, I, I like growing up in like evangelical and charismatic circles, like there were songs, you know, about that moment mm. that oh. captured that sense of sorrow and loss and oh. just absolute desolation and a sense that all of the things that this that God has promised would you know be there for us forever have been torn away. How do we grapple with this? And um, the way O. Michael White explains it in his work is that Jewish scriptures up to that point had lots of prophetic writing, but it was primarily about God relaying messages or warnings or promises to people through like individuals he'd appointed as prophets. But after the Babylonian defeat and captivity, they started integrating all those themes that we now call apocalyptic. And as a genre, apocalyptic literature is really pessimistic. Like Mm -hmm. it sees the present world as broken and corrupted and getting worse. And it fit into the prophetic tradition in that it was about people receiving visions and secret knowledge from God that, you know, others needed to hear. And it was concerned with like the big picture of final victory of good over evil in a way that would put the present suffering into perspective. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, like apocalypse literature isn't just like a disaster movie with, you know, payback at the end. It's about like the revealing of a grand plan and an end to injustice and an end to uncertainty about whether or not, you know, we we should 
keep holding on to hope. And the book of Daniel is one example of that. Um, It's in the Old Testament, but it's like one of the first examples of like apocalyptic literature that a lot of people know. And it's focused on the Babylonian captivity too. And a lot of its symbolism and and the stuff from the visions in the book of Daniel are just as much part of like the Christian end times lexicon as Revelation. so like for the next 500 years, Judea is like a hacky sack for, you know, a bunch of different empires. Sometimes Jewish culture is allowed to flourish and then it's smacked down. Babylon, Babylon is captured by the Persians. They let the Jews rebuild their temple in Jerusalem, but then the Persians are conquered by the Greeks and they crack down on Jewish religious practice. And then like around 160, 170 BC, there's a Jewish rebellion that like puts them back in charge of their own destiny. And for this brief window of time, they actually like they, they're ruling their own country again for, for this okay. window. Yeah. Um, and it in, also in part because the Greeks were busy being slowly devoured by the Roman empire and mm-hmm. they were busy. Um, yeah. But even that turned out to be short lived. And in about 60 BC, like the ruling head of Judea dies and, you know, there's a f- scuffle for power and one, and a German general rolls in and to settle it. And he like lays siege to Jerusalem, kills 12,000 people and desecrates the temple. Um, like he walks into the most holy place that only priests are supposed to go into and essentially says, Nope, it's ours now. And then Shortly thereafter, he like installs a new Rome-approved ruler named Herod, and Herod executes the rest of the previous ruling family. It is grim. It's like, yeah. you know, Rome drops the hammer. And that's the environment Jesus is born into. Right. Um, Roman occupied Judea with like different factions, some wanting to rebel, others wanting to like get on with living. And like the word zealot um comes from one of the factions that was that wanted to kick the Romans, try to kick the Romans out. Right. Um and there was actually one of the Jewish sects in Judea at the time was um, the Essenes. Um, they're, they're, and they're sort of off writing apocalyptic books about the final conflict with Rome that they believe is coming. And they think okay. that um, they're the sons of light who will do battle with the sons of darkness in a 40-year-long war. And they like hole up in the desert stockpiling weapons and writing books preparing for this. Like that's the background. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of the statements that are attributed to Jesus in the Christian Bible like dovetail with that apocalyptic undercurrent. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like the only... It's not necessarily like the defining thing about like the quote historical or biblical Jesus, mm-hmm. but like there's a lot of stuff he says that like that that he predicts that the temple in Jerusalem will be destroyed and that evil rulers who hate him will persecute his followers because they yeah. you know because you'll you'll be persecuted because you love me and they hate me and he even says that like his followers will live to see the end of the world in a final judgment um and when the romans decide that jesus is a troublemaker and they kill him his disciples decide that his death was also part of the plan and that he's going to return and wrap up the story so just to um underscore that they see the slow down a little bit um they sorry about that (laughs) they they see this as these apocalyptic writings are about something they see as imminent and not as and not as right two thousand years into the future you know yeah exactly like from the perspective of those first century like people who were following jesus like the second coming of christ is like a promise that he's going to be back shortly and right. he's going to finish up this thing that's going on. Right. Um, it's it's imminent and will happen. And, you know, he like he said, you know, the pe- people who are alive now are going to see me return. Um, and that narrative actually, like, fuels the spread of a lot of, um, like, evangelism and 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 uh, and outreach of you know the message of jesus even outside of jewish circles and they like start gathering convicts in other roman provinces too um but spoiler warning um things get worse and jesus does not come back um and like 40 years after jesus is executed by the romans his followers are just starting to really grapple with like so what does returning soon really mean right um and that's when Judea's Roman governor at the time steals a bunch of public funds. Another Jewish rebellion kicks off and Roman decides it's enough, that enough is enough and they drop the hammer again. Mm-hmm. And in 70 AD, 
Um, the Roman army rolls in, lays siege to Jerusalem, levels the city walls, destroys the temple again, mm-hmm. and kills roughly a million people. Like, okay. And like the Essenes, that Jewish apocalyptic sect that I mentioned, is absolutely is utterly wiped out um their writings were lost until the 20th century like it was just in the 40s that we oh, unearthed wow. like that was the dead sea scrolls if you've oh, ever heard yeah, of yeah. the dead sea scrolls that know. was that was the group that wrote the dead sea scrolls oh. and was copying those things wow um okay. and in like in the decades that follow that um cataclysm like the romans scatter um a bunch of judea's surviving inhabitants like all across their empire um Mm-hmm. And according to L. Michael White, um, that like massive first century eradication and exile mm-hmm. is essentially the end of the line for Jewish apocalyptic literature and like the first step towards the modern Jewish rabbinical tradition with more of a focus on like individual communities of Jews rather than a central temple. Okay. Um, uh-huh. But it's all for, but but in his writing, that's also like the moment when this Jesus sect sort of picks up the baton of the apocalyptic genre and uses it to understand what's happening and to come to grips with like this promise that Jesus would be coming soon, okay, coming back soon. But all of this terrible stuff is happening, and John's apocalypse is written right then, and. Right. That and it's the most most visible example of this. Now, Pagels in her book sort of emphasizes the idea that Revelation represents a, a sort of Jewish perspective in, in a tug of war between people who saw themselves as Jews who happened to follow a particular Messiah, because that was an era when there were actually a number of different Messiahs. Yeah. Um, you know, people who said, "I'm the Messiah. We're going to like kick the Romans out. Let's mm-hmm. do this." Um, but it, Pagels sees Revelation as like a moment of tension between people who saw themselves as part of that and like the growing body of Roman and Gentile converts who saw themselves as Christians Mm -hmm. with this history of Judaism in the background. And in some cases they even saw Christianity as a replacement for Judaism. And that's a hot topic in the first century. And if it sounds familiar to anybody who's read about European history or anti-Semitism, it will definitely come back to haunt us later. Um, but I don't think either Pagels or White disagree much, it, it disagree about the fact that like fundamentally the, the Revelation's audience and the people that it was written for, whether they saw themselves as like Jewish or Christian, they were in a bad spot. The teacher they followed had been executed. Jerusalem mm-hmm. had been leveled. They were being increasingly persecuted by the Romans. Um, uh, the stories of like feeding Christians to the lions and stuff like that. Yeah. Various Roman emperors did do that. Um, and they, but they believed that Jesus had promised to come back and finish this mission that he'd started and okay. that they had to wait for it. And in that context, Revelation's apocalyptic message and other books like that really resonated. Um, now, Pagels covers like a bunch of detailed history, but the big plot twist, um, I think, is in 313 AD um, when the Roman Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity, okay. <laughs> which is a significant reversal because after this era of like on and off persecution and, you know, some people ignore Christianity, some people like crack down on it, suddenly Christianity is legalized. And like, that's when the process of assembling, like what we now think of as the Bible begins and Christians start consolidating, like what is Orthodox theology versus just this soup of various, you know, Christian beliefs that different people have and write to each other about. And at the same time though, like, Jews were losing even more rights as the power shifted towards Constantine's new faith. And that sets a tone for like pretty much all of European history, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and religioustolerance.org has like a timeline of some of those events and how it affected like persecution of Jewish people. Um, I'll link to that. But like just a generation after Constantine converts, um, like the situation has changed so dramatically that Nicene Christianity, like the particular brand of orthodoxy that emerged uh-huh. out of you know one particular cluster of debates, is like the official religion of Rome. A bunch of other flavors of Christianity have been declared illegal heresies. Conversion to Judaism is outlawed, um, and f- like from that point in history on, Christians in Europe and like even eventually the Americas never really face religious persecution for being Christians the way they had 
in, no. in the era under Rome. Right. What they face is persecution for being the wrong kind of Christian from other Christians. Yeah. Um, and I'm speaking as a very opinionated, like, rando here. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that Christian... I personally don't think Christianity ever really recovered from, like, that whiplash of that moment in history. Mm-hmm. Like, a faith that was so profoundly shaped by, like, early persecution and exile and, like, driven by the sense that the end was just around the corner and that you had to keep faith and just hold on. And, you know, we're downtrodden, we're humble, but we'll endure suddenly like within just a couple of hundred years was like literally the official ro- faith of rome the symbol of evil from revel the book of revelation right. so it's it's um, suddenly a religion of empire and right yeah mm-hmm. and, and there's a ton that's been written about like constantine as like the builder of christian empire as a yeah. thing that like shaped europe oh but, i know yeah um, mm-hmm. even today i think a lot of fundamentalism's internal tension around we are persecuted but we're but all of us are christians but we're persecuted is like tangled up in its fixation on an era when christianity was was persecuted and living in the shadow of a pagan empire mm-hmm. but now has been in power for millennia like that tension i think is really significant and but the funny yeah, thing is, is like as, is. as significant as, as that like shift was, it did not dim anybody's enthusiasm for trying to like make sense of the prophecies and predictions that no. were that had been like so important to those early Christians. But they had to get a lot more creative now. Um, yeah, um, I mean, and, it did. I, there were there will be branches that emerge later that are le- like the reform tradition in Christianity, which are less interested in in these kinds of right. But, yeah, it's, it's not like um, an obsession everyone shares by any means, or even but. all fundamentalists. But um, yeah, it's yeah. So sorry. Go like, ahead. Oh no, no, it, it's like there are records of like the end is coming predictions like in like the first few centuries after Constantine right. like wikipedia has a huge list of them um a bunch of bishops calculated based on the dimension of noah's ark that the world was going to end in 500 AD and like in 995 AD like it was predicted that it was going to end because good friday fell on the same day as the feast of the annunciation that, that good that <laughs> noah's ark thing is brought back up in a like one of those Nineties era, uh, oh yeah, book. I think yeah, that comes up again. And, and that's a huge theme. This like you know, yeah. ah, we've cracked the code. We found this detail that you have to use as the key variable in your calculations, and mm-hmm. that cracks the code of all these symbols and all this and stuff. It's and all, it's all it's all numerology. That's all. <laughs> that's the uncomfortable truth of it. Um, mm-hmm. And. And like in the 1500s, it seems to pick up. Like, I'm not sure if that's because more people got interested in it or we just have better records. Um, like a lot of predictions seem to come from various Anabaptists. But again, yeah. you know, maybe they just wrote down more details. And um, Anabaptists were persecuted by Lutherans, right? They were. Um, and so- once again, there's that theme. You know, Chris, when yeah. when you're on the wrong end of the sharp stick, apocalyptic literature has a lot of resonance. Sure, um, yeah. And like, and different schools of like distinct different schools of thought emerged on like how to approach this stuff and how to make sense of these symbols. Like um, the idea that like specific books in the Bible were about specific points in history, or that most of the predictions have already been fulfilled in history, um, but maybe some of them are about the future. And then there was this like idealist school of thought that mm-hmm. said all the prophecies are just like allegories and metaphors for broader spiritual concepts. So we can learn from them, but they're not predictions. Yeah. Um, Martin Luther um, held to like what's called historicism. Mm-hmm. It focused on the idea that like apocalyptic books like Daniel and Revelation had already been mostly fulfilled in the past, but some specific things were in the future. Okay. Um, and one of the reasons he like, w- one of the reasons he also like sort of waved the flag for that is um, you know, it also allowed him to argue vigorously that the Pope was the Antichrist, which was very okay. on brand for him. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but like, it's the kind of view that like also helped elevate the Reformation from a theological disagreement to like an epic battle between good and evil. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And as the Catholic Church tried to crack down on the Reformation, bam, apocalyptic literature 
feels right on target. Um, uh, oh, okay. And by the time you get to like the 18th, you know, the 1800s even, like there like there's a there's a Baptist lay preacher named William Miller um who was also a historicist and he used an approach to calculate that like Jesus would return on or before 1843 specifically. Um, and he got a huge following and like his predictions became national news. Um, there were like, a, there were Millerite newspapers and traveling preachers. And like, I think the estimates are like somewhere around a hundred thousand people were Millerites and wow. the day came and went and nothing happened. And the backlash that followed was actually called the great disappointment, which I think, I mean, you kind of have to tip your hat to somebody who's like Bible study is so memorable that 200 years later, we refer to it as the great disappointment. Um, mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, Millerism ended up being like a big influence on the Watchtower Bible Society. And um, one of okay. the post disappointment Millerite sects ended up evolving into the Seventh Day Adventists. Right. Um, and so like, there's a lot of connections with like various movements and, and new religious movements right, even today. Seventh-day Adventists are another millenarian uh, movement. Yes. But yeah. Um, um, and, there, and there's one final school of interpretation called futurism, um, which was controversial. And, you know, I, I didn't dive too deep into it, but uh, the, the basic gist is that it was um, a sort of Jesuit pushback against Martin Luther's historicism. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, you've got this theory that says why the Pope is the Antichrist. Well, we've got another interpretive framework. Um, okay. And it, was, it wasn't uncontroversial, but like, basically, it, it ended up becoming incredibly popular with Protestants, ironically. Mm -hmm. But... Futurism held that like all of the apocalyptic books are like literal explicit warnings about specific things that are going to happen in the future, right before the second coming and the end of the world. They're not like references to the old Roman Empire, There's stuff that's going to happen. And it's like all telling this story about this thing that's going to happen. And today, when we talk about like end time stuff or evangelical visions of the apocalypse or the rapture, essentially we're talking about futurism. Um, you know, that's the framework they had. Okay. But specifically, it's a particular variation called dispensationalism. Yeah. Um, the dispensationalism was hammered out by like an Irish preacher named Clarence Darby in the mid 1800s. Okay. Um, really close to the same time the Millerites were like, you know, going ape in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, but he was part of like a group of disgruntled Anglicans that split off and formed their own leaderless group they called the Brethren. And then it split off and they, they for, and one, some of them formed something called the Plymouth Brethren. Yeah. And they took turns. Pre I've yeah, heard of that, this. I knew people raised in that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like that. That's where Clarence Darby and dispensationalism came out of. Oh, um, that is such a conservative sect. Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yep. Um, <laughs> And like you know, they and they they like, like believed there was no authority higher than the Bible itself, you know, for you know spirituality, and they didn't have any pre they didn't have pastors or church leaders. They just took turns preaching to each other and stuff like that. And as one might expect, given the context, uh, they were also very interested in Bible prophecy. And Darby like put his shoulder to that. Okay. And there's a lot of writing about dispensationalism out there and how it came to be. Unfortunately, the vast majority of it is either like pro-dispensationalist preaching or anti-dispensationalist polemics by like really angry people. Um, yeah. A great book uh, that covers this from a historian's perspective uh -huh. is uh, Jonathan J. Edwards' 2015 book, Super Church, The Rhetoric of Politics. The, the Rhetoric and Politics of American Fundamentalism. Oh. And among other things, it has a really interesting breakdown of like the origins of dispensationalism mm -hmm. and how it like rose above the fray. Um, and because like Darby outlined like a really complicated sort of grand unification theory of Bible prophecy that like tried to bring together all of the different prophetic and apocalyptic narratives and like resolve the inconsistencies and like combine them into unambiguous set of predictions about the future mm -hmm. um and he divided human history up into different dispensations um or like 
you know, units or like eras based on how God and mankind related to each other. Like, you know, there was the Garden of Eden and the, the God's covenant with Abraham and the age of the apostles and stuff like that. Um, and he insisted that there was going to be a rapture. You know, there was a moment in time when mm-hmm. all the all Christians would be pulled up into heaven and that would happen before the actual tribulation kicks in. And then the millennium would come after that and, you know, Christ's return. But then there would be a final judgment. And he had like diagrams to prove it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> lots of diagrams. Um and Darby insisted that like Bible prophecy should be taken as literally as possible, not like explained away as metaphors and, you know, unless they were obviously symbolic, which to be fair is kind of a judgment call in and of itself when you're talking about a 2000 year old book right. full of like flying wasp demons yeah. as like your source material. What's obviously symbolic and, or not is there's a lot of editorializing that goes into that. Right. Um, but the result, and this is kind of familiar to anybody who studied other forms of like fundamentalist literal Bible interpretation, was that things like every time a day is mentioned, they actually mean a year, got treated okay. as like straightforward and uncontroversial mm-hmm. literalism. Okay. But maybe John was writing about the fact that Roman emperors were monsters who were hortable to everyone. Mm-hmm. That was like unacceptable sophistry and just, you know, right. putting too much interpretation on it. Um, and And... This idea of literal interpretation and how important it was also contributed to another significant twist that dispensationalism popularized and one that's definitely a really important issue today. Um, It's like up to that point, um, a lot of Bible prophecy decipherers assumed what's called a replacement theology, the idea that like Christians had essentially replaced the Jewish people as like the best, not just as like the best religion ever, but as the subject of all prophecies. And as like the if, chosen people of God. Yes. Right? As like God's people. And like, if something in the Bible mentioned Israel or God's chosen people, well, that means Christians now because they rejected Jesus and we followed Jesus. And there you go. That's us now. And Elaine Pagel's book talks about like the origins of that view and like how the tension between Jewish and Gentile converts um, you know, played out and the speed with which that evolved into just flat out persecution of Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the millennia, um, that particular way of interpreting scripture got like woven into just terrifying levels of Christian anti-Semitism. Yeah. But Darby came to the conclusion that replacement theology violated his like dispensational principle of literalism and concluded that before Christ could return, Israel would have to be a nation again. And when that happened, Christians would be raptured. um, And the prophetic ambiguity about whether Jews or Christians were being talked about when a given prophecy, you know, talked about God's people, that would be resolved because Mm -hmm. Israel was a nation again, the Christians had been raptured, and the timetable of the apocalypse could move forward cleanly and smoothly. Um, And And like... Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so is the end game that the Jewish people will either be uh, like will either be murdered during the the um, the tribulation or that they will become future Christians? Ultimately, um, yes, they they will either convert and, you know, in that final judgment, you know, accept that you know god's way is true and follow jesus yeah or they'll be judged and sentenced to hell for all of eternity without all the people who refuse to like that's the end game for everyone in revelation no exceptions okay um and but like like the rapture and the other elements of the system that he made the idea of a literal israel being linked to bible prophecy wasn't like new um Mm -hmm. Like there are, you know, I think we talked about this a little while ago. There's like letters from the early 1800s where like, you know, President John Adams like writes to a friend to sort of musing about this idea and says yeah. something about like, oh, Wait. maybe perhaps all the Jews will be, become Unitarians. Okay, um, wow. but, but like it wasn't like a key part of like people's vision of how things would play out until because, Darby uh, integrated it into his like grand okay. unification theory. And, and Jewish people are kind of serve an instrumental role in this they're not right. yeah um and 
like I, I think it, like I want to clarify that like it doesn't seem like Darby was motivated like by some sort of deep philosophical objection to anti-Semitism. No, I don't se- think so. Um, Not at all. Or like concern for the persecution Jews had been enduring and were enduring like right there in Europe. Um, it's more that like dispensationalism's I mean, role for them was the key to unlocking the apocalypse. They still went to hell. Which is also anti-Semitic. Right. Yeah. Um, And and that's, on the other hand, it did motivate some dispensationalists to like speak out publicly and like raise funds to help um, Jews that were targeted in Russian pogroms. And a lot of like profoundly anti-Semitic critics of dispensationalism latched onto it to criticize Darby. Um, And like even today, if you hunt around for like critiques of dispensationalism, you almost immediately run into like angry conspiracy theories about Mm -hmm. like rabbis pulling Darby's strings and the Talmudic masters corrupting Christianity through Darby. Mm -hmm. Um, So like, there's this really weird and troubling, like anti-Semitic Spider-Man pointing at Spider-Man quality yes. to like to this. And if you've ever asked why fundamentalist evangelicals are fixated on Israel, Darby is a big part of that. Like okay. it's, it's, I'll, we'll probably reserve that for a whole nother episode. I, I, I don't want to like sink all of our remaining time into that, but like, that's where that, evangelical and fundamentalist like fixation on israel and like that eagerness to adopt and co-opt jewish um symbols also comes from Uh um so like wrapping things up we've got this dispensationalism like we've got this universal toolkit for interpreting scripture um in the 19th or sorry in the 1870s like dwight deal moody got on board with dispensationalism, which was a huge boon because like he was a really well-known American preacher, like Abraham Lincoln had visited his church and stuff like that. Oh, wow. Um, And and, like eventually most of his his trusted lieutenants that like, you know, helped run his church and his Bible college were also deep dispensationalists. And like a lot of the big names in early dispensationalist preaching and advocacy overlap with like Moody Church's pastoral roster from that time Mm -hmm. period. Um, And then like a guy named Clarence Larkin, like painstakingly created, wrote a book called Dispensational Truth that was like hundreds of charts and diagrams that illustrated all of the various like interactions and timelines that make up the dispensationalist theory. And like, if you've ever seen like weird looking woodcut illustrations of like King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon laying on his side and his beard is labeled Babylon and his midsection is labeled Rome. And there's a bunch of lines like that's a Clarence Larkin chart. Like those are like Mm -hmm. the images of dispensationalism, but the big kickoff, the big boost um, came right at the turn of the century um, when a guy named Cyrus Schofield sunk years into producing this giant reference Bible that integrated dispensationalist theology and like verse by verse analysis of like what things were actually references to some prophecy or whatever right into the footnotes and margins of the Bible itself. Um, and it was the first time like since I think the Geneva Bible in the 1500s that a popularly produced Bible translation had integrated notes and like commentary right in the Bible itself. And it sold like hotcakes, um, like for decades, like in the 1980s, I was given a copy of the Schofield Bible by a youth group leader who was really worried that I didn't have one. Um, <laughs> like that is how much of a mark the Schofield Bible left. Um, and in 1917, due to popular demand, he made an updated second edition that had like events that like all of the events in the Bible dated in the margins. So you could more easily do like calculations about like timelines and stuff like that. And one of the fascinating details that comes with that is that that is most people's first exposure to the idea that the earth was 6,000 years old. Oh. Um, because he... Um, in attempting to construct this timeline, took the work of like this um, bishop, for, uh, this um, Bishop Usher, who had gone through and like counted up everyone's ages in the Bible when it talks about so and so was born and so and so lived this long. He made like Usher made a timeline of the Bible out of that stuff, mm-hmm. and 
and Schofield took that, turned it into this integrated timeline, and that's where the Earth is 6,000 years old trope that is key to like young Earth creationism. That's where that came in. I didn't know that. Okay. It's kind of wild. Um, Now, this brings us to like around 1910 to 1920. I mean, they're so convinced that you can't be a Christian if you don't think that. I, I, no. Yeah. Okay. I mean, we put all this work into making the absolute key to unlock the meaning of the entire Bible. And, you know, it's, and we're just simply literally interpreting the plain and simple words of scripture. Mm-hmm. How could you possibly disagree with this if you aren't part of the apostate people who are falling <laughs> away and being fooled by the Antichrist? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the, this brings us to like 1910, 1920. And that time period is one that's come up before on the show because that's the time where like the American fundamentalist evangelical split was happening. Um, You know, fundamentalism as an actual like named ideology was actually trying to like fight its war with like mainline evangelicals and other denominations. It was anti-evolution, anti-modernism. It believed in literal scripture, not, you know, explaining everything away as symbols and metaphors. And one of its key theological tenets was the imminent return of Christ. And dispensationalism you know, it it was growing fast, but it was still controversial and lots of different parts of, you know, Christendom. It was deeply unpopular with them. And it was called like a heresy by a lot of people, but it clicked right in with a lot of the things that were animating American fundamentalism in that split. And it took root as like the driving eschatological framework of like that part of the American fundamentalist world. And, um, we're almost finished here, but like I want to kind of wrap up with a quote from that book, Super Church, that I think mm-hmm. nails it. Um, okay. The author writes, by separating from major denominations and retreating into anti-ecumenical and counter-political communities in the mid-20s, fundamentalists abandoned many of their options for direct engagement with the world. Um, Fundamentalist speech became far less likely than revivalist speech to demand collective repentance on the part of the audience and to right wrongs. And it became much more likely to define the fundamentalist community as the righteous defenders of the faith against like religious, like against corrupt religious politicians Mm -hmm. and the apocalyptic narratives offered the hope of like literal escape and rescue. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, they also allegorically placed fundamentalist believers and communities and values at the center of contemporary political social events. Um, They created for those fundamentalist believers, like a frame through which spiritual identity and political activism are linked. And the struggle for salvation is one and the same with violent resistance against ecumenical tolerance and, and ideological battles against communists, Mm -hmm. feminists and academics and liberals and all of the other agents and would be agents of the antichrist who are trying to corrupt the world. And integrating like a grim literalism and allegorical imagination, apocalyptic narratives offer significant resources in the constitution and motivation of political community mm-hmm. for fundamentalists. Yeah. And I I think I feel like that sort of brings us back full circle to the questions we touched on at the very beginning of the episode. Like apocalyptic narratives and in particular like dispensationalism's particular vision of like separation and Mm -hmm. conflict and divine retribution they don't tell the whole story of what's happening with the christian right and they're not held by all of the christian right but they're a really important key to understanding like the insistence on turning every conflict into a grand battle between light and darkness Mm -hmm. and the insistence that we're being persecuted and everything we're opposed to is this massive force in the world that is determined to stamp us out. Um, Mm -hmm. These apocalyptic narratives, I think, are really key to understanding where that comes from. And mistaking it just for they want the end of the world to come is 
it's not really getting the picture. It's not like, yay, we want everything to vanish in a big ball of fire. It's we want this broken world where our values aren't held dear. We want that to be fixed mm-hmm. once and for all. That's the revelation okay. that is looked forward to. Um, so I, I'm going to wrap <laughs> at that point. <laughs> um, we've got other stuff coming because the like the post-World War One and even post-World War II era, where fundamentalism was sort of like, in terms of broader culture, it was essentially <laughs> underground mm-hmm. um, in, in the United States. But then it it really had a resurgence in like starting in the 50s and 60s and then really in the 70s. Yep. And that's also where we saw the sudden rise of rapture fiction and apocalypse novels and movies and stuff like that. Those things dovetail. And next time when we take a closer look at some of those stories and novels and movies that are like now kind of pop culture, um, I think this is this is the runway for that, both as a pop culture phenomenon and as what those artifacts tell us about like how that burgeoning movement was starting to understand its place in returning into like public engagement. Right. <sighs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, thank you. And thank you to the audience for, for being here with us. Um, you can find us on Substack and subscribe to help us keep making these episodes at, uh, brightcast.substack.com is that right jeff yes it is okay and uh you can find us on twitter at c rightcast and individually on twitter at Kristen rawls and at eaton and we really appreciate you being here thank you so much